Welcome back to Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast about deep cuts and hot cookies. We're coming to you live on ADAT from Shatterhand Sound up here in North Toronto. We're on USB. Yeah. (laughs) Over USB protocol uh, from beautiful North Toronto. It's a nice 15 degrees centigrade out here. and Parametric pressure is falling. (laughs) So uh, thanks a lot to everybody who's been listening so far and enjoyed our epic discussion. Uh, You can go back and listen to all that on the iTunes or on the Facebook. Did we get any mail? Uh, We got a couple comments. uh, Some positive uh, reinforcement for our madness. A couple of people commented on the sound of my radio voice, which was nice to hear. That's what we do here. Tone. Uh, we're recording through a couple of vintage mics. Maybe, Christian, you want to... Oh, uh, I'm going through the Bear Dynamic M88, which is what I always do, which is... It's, it's a modern one. It's not a vintage one. But Tim is going through a Labor W, which is... Labor doesn't mean like labors in work. It means like it's the German word short for laboratory. Yeah. It's a pre-Sennheiser 403. Mm. Uh, it's a recent edition here. It, you would not think that it's a mic that was made before the Suez crisis <laughs> from the way that it sounds. Um, a little bit hard to position but yeah. fantastic mic and if you can get the labor w ones they're cheaper than the sennheiser script logo and they're identical so there's right. a there's a tip for uh all uh, you audio nerds out there want to track down a 403 be hard pressed to better this guy yeah they're they're similar uh to anyone who's fans of pink floyd they're similar to the one that um they used the, the 509 i think it, it was 409 409 one of those giddy up 409 get yeah. in there all right so enough uh waffling on about audio uh, this week on Under the Radar, we're going to talk about uh, the Rolling Stones archive recording uh, back in 2012 when they were celebrating the 50th anniversary. You may know they opened this website, stonesarchive.com, where they were selling this lavish, super overpriced Brussels Affair box set with a watch and a couple of slabs of vinyl. I think I think it was the whole Brussels Affair show over three pieces of vinyl. Yeah, I made I made fun of that a lot. Yeah, it was really over the top. But what was great about it was you could just buy the download of the show super cheaply directly from the Stones. And then uh, that was really successful. So they started offering a bunch of other shows, some of which have been reissued in physical format and that you can properly buy in real record store. If any survive. Yeah, if you can find a record store in your town, you can get the new uh, Sticky Fingers Live album, which just came out. And we may talk about that on another podcast later. It's quite good. But uh, actually, one of them has as yet not been re-released on physical format, and that's this one that we're going to talk about this week. It's called Light the Fuse, A Bigger Bang in Toronto. Yeah, um, so I was at this show. Yeah, this was in 2005. The very, very start of the Bigger Bang Tour, which went on. I think on it was early 2006. No, 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 we're talking summer 2005. I remember it well. Oh, right, 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 because the tour, yeah, so the tour was actually booked. I remember the announcement they did at Juilliard because the tour was actually booked under the name on stage because they didn't have a name for the album yet. Right. They were in the middle of recording it. Charlie had just recovered from his cancer treatment. The cancer, yeah. And um, so I think that there was a real mood of gratitude. Yeah, for sure. We weren't sure if they were going to tour again after the Licks tour, and this was a couple years down the road after the end of that. And also, in retrospect, um, I didn't realize what an issue uh, the knighthood was for Mm, Keith, and that he threatened to pull out of the Licks tour, so we're even more uh, lucky to have them. Now, the Stones have had a special relationship with uh, Toronto. The same way that the United Kingdom and the United States enjoy a special relationship. Exactly, exactly. That, I chose my words very well. <laughs> um, they had rehearsed here since uh, signing with Michael Cole. Right, in the 80s with uh, the Steel Wheels. Tour. Yeah, it was 89. And uh, I have a couple of very short vignettes here about uh, the rehearsals. My father used to play tennis at Glendon College, which is near uh, Crescent School. And he heard some very loud rock music yeah. coming out of the school. From the school gymnasium. And he went to go complain about it. Who, Turn that down. Who is that? Turn that down. Yeah, it turns out it's the Rolling Stones uh, rehearsing at Crescent. And then the other story that I heard from my friend there who went to who went to Crescent um, is that uh, Keith Richards stole the drapes uh, to make a suit. So there's actually and then and then when they when they said, Keith, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'll, I'll pay and I'll replace them. So there's actually a plaque up in, Cre- in Crescent School that says uh, the, drapes you, donated by, by Keith Richards. Um, <laughs> this, this is relevant to my story as well, because in 2005, I was working as a part time security guard to help get a little extra pocket money while I was in college. And uh, my boss called me up one day and was like, do you want some full time work? And I said, hell yeah, I do. 
uh, where is it? And he said, it's at this school up the road. And I was like, hell yeah, that's like walking distance from uh, my parents' place. I'll just like crash there and then go to work and make a little money, stash it away, and then spend it on beer when school's back. And uh, he says, you can't tell anybody, but it's the Rolling Stones. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. And I wasn't a huge Rolling Stones fan at this time, but I was like, okay, I'll keep that under my hat. But obviously I had to tell my parents like where I was going every day. I'm guarding these rehearsals for the, the this band, and it's a... Uh, it's a secret. Can't tell you. But then I suppose people figured out that it, when it was when yeah. they knew where you were going. Yeah, because exactly. we know where that was. Because I was hanging out around there in the hopes that right. You know, well, every day people would line up around the barricade we set up to try and get autographs. Yeah, and I had to like open the barricade and then you know escort the town cars to the parking lot and then open the door for them. And you know, oh, how are you, Mister Jagger? Good to see you again. But anyway, that's all you know. Side dressing because uh, while they were rehearsing for that 2005 tour, uh, they were plotting to do another uh, dress rehearsal show. They normally, before the eve of a tour, after they've been rehearsing for a while, Keith Richards likes to say, you know, one show in front of a club audience is as good as two weeks of rehearsal. So they'll always book, and because it's Toronto for the past tours up until this current era, the 50th anniversary era, they would always book a small club show in Toronto. And this was one of those shows at the Phoenix Theater, which is, I don't know, about 800, 1,000 yeah, capacity. Yeah, and I think capacity is 900. Um, so uh, if we get into my personal reminiscences, mm -hmm. uh, we were tipped off by Bob Parker's dad, uh, Fred, who works at the CBC, and, and he said, get down there. And it was like 6 o'clock in the evening. Mm -hmm. um, and the evening before the show. Yeah, the evening before the show. And uh, before you, the day of the show, right? Like, yeah, like no, no, because you had hours. to wait. Tickets, the wristbands went on sale for 20 bucks uh, at six the next morning. So the lineup formed at six in the evening before. And we were about second or third in line mm -hmm. when we got down there because we were, you know, we were still college age, yeah. university age children. Was it 20 bucks on the our album artwork? It says it's- I thought it was 20. It was some ridiculously cheap it amount was, of I money mean, to see the Rolling Stones. Yeah, it didn't matter, like, you know, at that scale. Yeah, the Sticky Fingers show, they refunded everybody's money at the end at the, the Fonda. They gave everybody oh. their 10 bucks back. Well, <laughs> I, what's funny is that you, if you look back at uh, journalism from the 69 tour, tickets were $4 and people were objecting to, to that right. price. And a carton of cigarettes was two or something in those yeah. days, so I don't know. But no, it says on the album artwork, it says uh, 8.30 p.m. tonight, the Phoenix regular cover sold out, $10. Oh, yeah, 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 $10, something like that. So, um, you know, we're, we're sitting there waiting and I actually ended up spending most of the time talking to an older guy who was a teacher and he was from Oshawa. Okay. Where the, where they did the CNIB the show. CNIB show and he told me a lot, the two shows, he told me all about those shows. Yeah. This was Keith Richards' plea bargain to avoid drug conviction in the late seventies. The judge sentenced him to community service in the form of playing two benefit concerts. Yeah. And, uh, they actually... They actually tried to have me removed from the lineup because they thought I was a homeless person. Well, you did look a little I bit was, strange. I was dressed like Keith. Yeah, I, I did. I, we weren't friends at the time, but I was aware of you through mutual social circles. And I recognized you and Bob like hanging outside the rehearsal space. And I was like, oh, I know those guys. I've since toned it down. Yeah, <laughs> you don't actively try to look like Keith Richards anymore, I would and, say. You know, I, I couldn't. No, no 20-year-old person can do that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, they, they weren't expecting me to like have ID on me because that was the whole thing. And, and they, the security was super obvious in, in attempting to like corner me in there. But yeah, they and, and there were some older people there who did not like us because we had actually left the lineup very briefly to like throw out trash and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And when and this this has become the kind of story of my life. There's a lot of older fans who don't think that younger people deserve to be involved in this or don't think oh, yeah. that it means as much. Or that uh, if you weren't there, your opinion doesn't matter. Yeah, and you know, eyewitness accounts are, are spotty <laughs> at best. We know this from human psychology. Well, I find it funny that people who were, you know, and people always talk about how it used to be about the music and it's like, really? Like you guys just like did drugs like crazy and the sound systems were awful and you could, I, I don't think you could hear anything. Yeah, but I think the Rolling Stones, you know, as and this was, I think, my beef at the time why I wasn't into the Rolling Stones because I, I thought they were too slick, you know, and, and, and this was a criticism that I just received as the truth and I never really bothered to investigate the music for myself, but when I did, 
I found that actually the Rolling Stones are an interesting and compelling band, but the prevailing wisdom at the time was, oh, they're just a big show. It's just a big artificial Vegas review, and that's totally wrong. And just listening to this album puts the lie to that. Yeah, so I think that the Phoenix really was the best possible venue. Uh, because I know that they had done the, you know, when we used to play at the horseshoe, the sound guy used to look up, they kept the tape strip from that night. Mm -hmm. And apparently when we were doing a good job, they would look up at the tape strip, (laughs) you know, but, but I think that the Phoenix is a, is a better sounding venue and it's a, it's a, it's a slightly bigger room. Yeah. There's Uh, a gallery up the top. Which is nice, and and you know we've I've seen uh, now that I've seen a few other shows there, including Gary Newman. Mm-hmm. Um, I I stand by that. I think it's a nice, it's a it's a very good sounding room. Yeah, when it's a small stage, and and th- this is remarkable because this lineup for this tour, they have the whole horn section with them. So the Woodford horns, yes, he calls them, them, yeah, for some strange reason, um, big four piece horn section plus Lisa Blondie. And Bernard on backing vocals. Yeah, so this is like the biggest... This isn't Bridges, Bridges to Babylon or the biggest version of the band. Uh, I think Steel Wills is actually even bigger. Oh, no, no, Because they, they had Matt Clifford. Clifford, and actually the horn section is bigger. Yeah, but uh, this is like, horn. for a small club, like, this is a big band to fit on and they stage. had And they had to extend the stage mm-hmm. at the Phoenix. And I know that at the, at the Horseshoe, uh, Blondie, Bernard, and Elisa were actually slightly off stage. Right. They were in the what I used to use wings. as my entrance yeah. area there. When I was waiting in line to actually go in, because we went, we got the wristbands and we went home and we had a nap and we showered and everything. We came back and I wasn't there to see the artists enter, but I did see Charlie Watts mm-hmm. walk up. Now I say walk. Charlie Watts does not move like a normal person. No. And I believe that this is his Fred Astaire thing i have never seen a person move as quickly without running yeah as charlie watts because he he got out of the car turned around gave a very brief wave and then he was gone without actually running but he just like i, yeah. I don't know and he was he was dressed immaculately he, he is he is the most graceful and elegant human being i think i've ever witnessed his sock wardrobe alone puts justin trudeau's to shame I yeah i'd say if there's one thing we want to be on record here (laughs) (laughs) the show is structured fairly dynamically because it starts with the four rolling stones plus daryl and chuck that's sort of the core band um you know bernard is singing backups on on rough justice and playing tambourine i believe and uh blondie was playing the tambourine ah okay so because i because there's i very clearly saw after the trues open for them and there's a brief space i very clearly saw mick walk on stage mm-hmm. but keith materialized out of a cloud of smoke sure like the, the the and i'm i i will go to my grave telling you that's the way it went down and you can hear the crowd reaction too they shout keith yeah well i was leading the charge on that for sure <laughs> um but with rough justice the reason i know i remember it's blondie because they opened with rough justice and i, I was really hoping that they did mm. Because um, this was a brand new, this was a single. It was on the radio, and it was an appropriate. It was an appropriate thing to open with. It's very high energy, yeah. and and, um, and the it's reason, the live debut, obviously. And the reason I don't think that they ended up opening the tour with it is because they kind of messed it up. Yeah, you can hear it kind of goes off the rails. And at that point, Blondie like leapt across the stage to get right in front of Charlie, and I remember him with the tambourine because trying he was to trying to get right. everyone back together. Yeah, and. It's actually kind of interesting to see them screw up. Oh, totally. Because yeah. because what happens is that there's this kind of inertia that takes over mm-hmm. that I find kind of interesting. I don't, and it's not that I like, there are some people who say I really like to hear bum notes or, you know, I like when bands don't try very hard, but that's not it. It's, it's that you can really hear the groove in its most elemental nature when they're just like trying to to write themselves and it was interesting but I know that they're very very superstitious apparently one of the reasons that they didn't play Shattered for a long time is that the first time they played it on the Steel Wheels tour the power went out right and it was dropped from the set list it was dropped from the set list so so I think that that's the I think the plan was to open the whole tour with Rough Justice but then when it went wrong they they relegated it from opening to the to the B stage but it is a good performance despite the screw up. Mick and Bernard somehow like catch each other's screw ups. Like when Mick forgets a line or whatever, Bernard sort of 
supports him and goes to the incorrect line so they don't sound totally out of they are the livest live band yeah you know really and they're they're what i find interesting is that we live in an age now where everybody uses backing tracks Mm -hmm. and auto-tune and whatever and and bernard always says well the thing about mick is whatever it is it's all him yeah you're not uh getting any hashtag no filter exactly yeah and which is also keith after a few drinks (laughs) um and I think his preferred smoke I don't think, too. I don't think he has any filter to begin with. <laughs> what am I saying? Um, but so that's that's a cool little thing. Is that you? You got to see the live debut of several new songs from a bigger bang. Yes. On that show. Uh, so what was what was next? It was so it was live, live with, with me. me. Yeah. Now live with me is one of those ones where it, it was it was getting played a lot at this point, and you kind of ended up being like, oh, live with me again. But it's great because Daryl's take on the bass part is fantastic you know the funny thing is is that that's keith playing it on the record yeah and keith let it bleed keith is a much more aggressive bass player than bill wyman Mm -hmm. and that's not a knock against bill wyman he's a very sensitive and 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 responsive player and if you're a guitar player or a drummer having a bass player like that is is great because it lets you do whatever you want but But he you you listen to vintage live versions like get your your yayas out and it 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 doesn't have the they they really kind of have to rein it in. Yeah. And, and Keith is doubling the bass line a lot mm-hmm. of the time. So so having Daryl, I think there's a number of great recordings. Oh, the stripped show. That's sure. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. That's the first time where they really had him bite into it. Yeah. And Daryl Daryl Jones, as we've been elaborating, is is one of the best guys ever mm-hmm. uh, uh, to play the the bull fiddle. And um, <laughs> he this one this one again. It's like as I've seen live with me. I think they've done it at nearly every one of the shows that I've seen. Oh wow. Um, uh, yeah. It is. It is a great as as far as album tracks go. And this is supposed to be a deep cuts podcast. Like we'll yeah. big ups to live with me because. The lyric is clever and funny and still applicable with the headphones and yeah yeah and he and he updates it yeah but it's a great it's also a great second song totally because and it's they groovy, use it swings you know, <laughs> get the toe tapping because the way that I think that you want to structure a set is that the first one starts at like a hundred yeah and then the next one you want to be at like a hundred and ten yeah and then usually th- the third song is about where you want to let there be some space and that's exactly what they do here they they introduce another brand new arrangement this is a, obviously an old song but they'd never played it quite this way and it's a kind of more bluesy slow version of uh 19th nervous breakdown which they never did again i think they did it a couple times on the bigger bang shows but uh it didn't really work in the outdoor shows so that's probably why they it's, dropped it it's too yeah and and it's it's really it's a cool thing to do. I actually thought it was its only rock and roll when I first heard it mm-hmm. lurching that way because he said it's an old song and you know, do it yeah. slightly differently. And they don't they don't do its only rock and roll in E anymore. It's been through several key changes, but yeah, that was really neat. And I especially love to hear Keith. Hey, it being a little bit slower, it really lets Keith get into those Everly Brothers harmonies, yeah. Yeah. and uh, that's fun. That's probably the most enjoyable part of that song is the Oh Who's to blame yeah and i I love uh ronnie wood doing the kind of dive bomb at the end which was originally an overdub on the original record of bill wyman but he's doing that thing on his uh stratocaster what was he playing on this one i thought it was a strat but he was also playing a firebird a lot in these days yeah a la brian jones yeah i think that i think that sometimes woody is left to do a lot of the more like keith doesn't really care to go back and do anything exactly Special the way effects. it was. And neither does and neither does Mick. And to their credit, right, they 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 want to go to new territory. Mm. And that's something that I don't think that they're ever really given uh credit for. But this uh the record, you know, 19th Nervous Breakdown, uh it's made for AM radio, like that boom, bam, 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 bam. that riff is great, but you know, by just taking that element out of it and yet keeping the song in a recognizable shape, they've done an interesting thing to update it here, I think. Yeah, it was it was super, super cool to hear. It doesn't have that diddly-daddy riff either. Yeah, well... Bum, I, bum, 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 bum. Yeah, it doesn't have a lot of that, but I, I think that... Um, I was thinking about this the other day, that I think that the original is very reminiscent of both uh, What I Say... Mm-hmm. Ray Charles, uh, yeah. By Ray Charles, and also Dream Baby, especially sure. the Jerry Lewis version. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a really... The, 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 it's hard because you have this original, like 19 Nervous Breakdown, I, I'm not going to try to defend the lyric or the circumstances under which it was written, mm. but in terms of its innate uh, rhythm and the, the way that it kind of propels itself forward, it's, it's a great 
I always find it funny that nobody really thinks about that in terms of the same way that we think of a lot of the the 60s kind of two minute and 30 second masterpieces. Sure. But I, I love it. It's one of my favorites on Hot Rocks and that whole like 60s era. But this is, uh, I, it's more tailor made for the band as they are today in this form. Yeah. Uh, so what's after this one? So then they do uh, She's So Cold, which is funny because Mick seems to have forgotten they'd ever done it before, even though it was on like several tours before this in the 80s. Yeah, it's on the 81 tour. Mm-hmm. And there's a famous story about when Woody was really in the, the depths of drug abuse. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, Keith forgot the introduction to She's So Cold. And he started just jumping on the drum riser and, and trying to get Charlie to start the song and then right as Woody was going to come in uh, Keith notices that he's kind of drifted it off and just ran across the stage and punched him Mm. Uh, so that's how I know that it was on the 81 tour because that story is in Victor Bacris's book but She's So Cold is an interesting number because it's from Emotional Rescue like the the 1980 LP and um, it seems to kind of get forgotten even though it was a single and there was a video and everything Um, it's a wonderful display of the the weaving interplay between Woody and Keith. And yeah, that's another example of the introductory riff being Ron Wood. Yeah. And that this is really from the era where Woody was getting much more involved in the writing. And, and that's uh, that amazing lick in the breaks that he plays on the B-bender here. The this version is definitely a lot more... Um, Slanted towards country, sure, and yeah. I find I find that to be a very interesting. She's so cold is an interesting hybrid of like a lot of the new wave. Yeah, I think that was happening because it has a lot of. It's very straight in a lot of ways, but with the kind of slap back on the guitar, it has an, a rockabilly element. To yeah, it. it's like mixing. It, it, and and the other one that's like that is uh, she was hot. Yeah, so there's a there's a there's some she's so cold that Jungian so, thing. She was hot. Yeah, <laughs> the duality. Yeah, exactly. No, I I think I prefer she was hot, but she's so cold has a great kind of groove to it, and uh, they they still play it to this day. It was on the No Filter tour just a yeah. They, it was the, the vote song or something. Yeah, but um, the other thing too is if you ever hear the if you hear like the static in the attic bootleg where they have the original outtakes. Takes, yeah. That take for She's So Cold is nine minutes long. Yeah, they and just kept going. It doesn't relent at yeah, all. And like that's, a train. That's the thing that, that is so crazy about them is that, like, I mean, I get exhausted after, like, three minutes of that. Um, but but the fact that they can hold a groove for that long and sustain it because it doesn't lose any energy by the end of it. It's still, it's still the same. And I think the album take is just that nine minutes edited down. It is. It's just the first three minutes of it. Amazing. So the next track that they play is uh, dead flowers. And again, this is another kind of like uh, bone thrown to the hardcore seventies fans who love it on the Sticky Fingers album. And I like it too. Again, I did, I actually think that the best version of this that's ever been recorded is from Stripped. Yeah, great, great harmony from Keith. And, and, and the way that, now they used to do it where Keith and Mick played acoustics, where Keith played the classical gut string guitar and Mick played a Gibson Hummingbird or some equivalent and Woody was the only one playing electric. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an ironic lyric and I think that a lot of people don't like ironic country music because sure. for some people it's got to be hyper real. Yeah. And Otherwise it feels like they're making fun of it or but, whatever. But was Buck Owens making fun of country music? No, I don't think not. so. Like and and Buck Owens always had and that to me like the Stones are way more Bakersfield when yeah. they when they do country they're way more Bakersfield than well, they are. Far Away Eyes is the example apotheosis. You know, like like literally they they say Bakersfield in that place yeah. in that song. And Dead Flowers is like very similar to a Buck Owens song I think, but it's more like if if he became more cynical and and had more experience with drugs, yeah, or at least was in a market where that was acceptable terminology. Now the other thing that I saw during this is I saw Keith. Uh, it was right before a chorus. I think he had finished his cigarette and he he flicked it out of his hands and then kicked it. <laughs> it was I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, it's just utterly careless to do, but it was a great piece of performance. Only Keith Richards in button down. Toronto the good can get away with indoor smoking these days. Yeah, and apparently he's been fined in a couple of places. They've yeah. been, they've, they've actually tried, to, know two tried to find yeah. Keith and Ronnie for smoking. Uh, they're not going to stop. They're going to pay the fine, yeah. but they're not going to stop. And I wish that they... Well, Woody has quit. Woody has, yeah, and Keith hates him for it, apparently. <laughs> well, I mean... But the man's got young children, so... You know, yeah. Power to him. 
But what's great to me about the arrangements that they've done since the Voodoo Lounge tour is uh, Chuck Lavelle. Like his piano and singing on this really brings the country feel back to the forefront. I think the 70s versions are just like a rocked up kind of dumbed down version of these songs. Yeah, like the ladies and gents one. Yeah. I always find, I think that McTaylor is certainly a good guitar player, oh, but yeah. I, I find the way he plays it on ladies and gents is just kind of, it's almost too over the top. It is. It's like there's like tapping in there, and it's just kind of a bit much. But, uh, you know, this is great, and a good version of it here, and long may they continue to play it. So, um, Next is another debut from the new record, which is uh, a kind of country blues uh, that Mick wrote on slide guitar called Back of My Hand. Yeah, this one, and you can see the, there's video of, of this on exact the, performance. The Biggest in, Bang DVD. It's in the Biggest Bang DVD. Now, something tells me that the whole thing was shot. Yeah. And this this brings me to another personal connection is that um, I don't actually know these guys, but the the Biggest Bang and a lot of the tour documentary stuff was shot by guys that went to UCC that I your alma mater. Yeah, they knew uh, my brother more more than 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 me. But they had the Michael Cole connection, and that's yeah. How and I actually ran into one of Michael Cole's kids at Capsule Music in mm. his old location on Queen Street, and he was wearing the logo of Mindless Records, which is Keith Richards' record company. And I recognized it from Wingless Angels, and I said, "Where'd you get the Mindless Records T-shirt?" Mm -hmm. And he said, "Well, I'm." And he said, "He said I've had this shirt for." you know, 10 years or so, and you're the first person to ever recognize. <laughs> Even though Keith wears the patch on his guitar strap for Macabre now, so it's been on stage with him for years and years. Yeah, well, you know, I don't there know. Yeah, uh, But but yeah, Back of My Hand is super cool, and this, this is kind of more of a full band thing. What they were copying on the record is Still a Fool. Yeah. Which has uh, Leonard Chess... Playing, so, yeah. playing the kick drum because mm -hmm. he didn't like the way the drum the drummer was playing it, so he just sat there and and pounded it out. But yeah, it's a sort of it's a cross between the Chess Records blues, the Chicago blues, and a more Delta blues. Well, because everybody came up north uh, for work yeah. in in the steel mills or in uh, the auto industry in Detroit and Pittsburgh and all those cities from down south, right? And so the reason there was a market for this kind of electrified Delta blues is because people were uh, homesick. Yeah. In fact, uh, feel like going home. Muddy Waters song sure. uh, addresses that um, directly. Well, and even uh, I can't be satisfied, which you see Mick playing on that, that same guitar he uses on this is, you know, about leaving. It's about going back down South, yeah. right? He says that. And, and so it's, it's interesting to see English people translate a, a musical form that was kind of transplanted to begin sure. with yeah. from a rural setting to an urban one. Mm -hmm. And then, so if you look, if you compare the Stones to like the Downliners sect or uh, the Alexis Corner sure. blues band or any of these people who were very influential and very popular, but never transcended the the British blues boom, the, the, thing, the reason why I think the Stones uh, ended up becoming more than just a cover act is because they didn't so much take this stuff and say, oh, we are bluesmen, yeah. is they they translated blues and the language of it and the mythological landscape of blues into their own setting. Right. So there's a personal element to mixed lyrics here, which although they use the kind of uh, you know hoodoo prophecy format of a blues lyric, it's really about mixed personal Oh, and it and, and, and back of my hand and a number of other things from A Bigger Bang have only become more prescient and terrifying. Yeah, in the in, current political climate, you can look at back of my hand as being absolutely prophetic, not just it, fake prophetic. No, and especially when it comes to um, the rise of this, uh, ISIS mm -hmm. and and uh, the not so the much... fallout from the American imperialism that was a big bugaboo at the time, you know, during the W era. We look back kind of at now as a with a bit of fondness. But at the <laughs> I time, definitely we do, yeah. Uh, you know, the Iraq War was a huge issue. You know, in 2005, American soldiers were going and dropping bombs on Iraq, and there was a vocal opposition to the war. But even the Stones, including commentary about it on A Bigger Bang, was a huge source of controversy. Yeah, and and it's weird. It's 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 certainly weird to look back on um, in, in now, uh, but. You know, Mick is Mick is a sharp guy. He yeah. reads he reads a lot. He's very up on current affairs. Yeah, there's like tabloid culture, which I think is the Rupert Murdoch thing. Mick has an eye towards the media because the Stones obviously live or die by media coverage, and they they thrive on their media image. But he's also very ambivalent about 
the war machine in the media. You know, the whole thing about the high wire lyric that was controversial at the time was one uh, of the best. Yeah, amazing lyric. Um, they were actually censored from playing one of the verses on the BBC because it was critical of the UK involvement in the first Gulf War. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to look back at that now, knowing what we know now. Yeah, and and it's also funny to think of what what is and isn't controversial anymore. I yeah. mean, movie ratings have been completely scaled down. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, right? So the whole culture is kind of, I you know, they made some remark when the Stones played the Super Bowl on this tour about, do you think American culture is moved closer to the Stones or have the Stones moved closer to American culture? And Mick said, well, I think it's a bit of both. Well, and it's that thing. Um, he said it when they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's um, it's a French guy. I can't remember, but he said Americans are funny. First, first you shock them, then they put you in a museum. Yeah, because that that Super Bowl was right after the Janet Jackson one. Yes, it was. And, and what I find funny is that people still find it very funny because there's always this element of, you know, it's hard to intellectualize the Stones and, and it's not something that I think people should actually do, really. Here we are on a podcast about it. No, but <laughs> I mean... Academic discussion. What we're talking about is is not the same thing as as the way people discuss. I think Lou Reed is probably the number one guy where it's about... Um, it's dressed up as, as... Literary rock. It is, but it's but at the end of the day, mostly it's people imposing a personal narrative on sure. it. And, and Same thing with Dylan, all those guys. Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk about the next song in the set, which is a Motown cover. I yeah, mean, he's keeping us going. Yeah. So, Ain't Too Proud to Beg is the choice to bring out the horns with. So, they have this amazing uh, trumpet and trombone to the fore uh, horn section arrangement for this song, which, you know, I feel like they could have used on the original record. Um, when they covered this on It's Only Rock and Roll, it kind of sucks the energy out of I, it. I, I do like the studio version. The keyboards kind of uh, kind of make up for it. And and the, the original concept for It's Only Rock and Roll, strange enough for the, what the title ended up being, the original concept for it was that it would be a bunch of older R&B covers sure. done in the style of 70s rock. Stuff and, like Drift Away. Yes, which yeah. I think is really good. And somebody on this podcast doesn't think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I prefer the Nylons version version of Drift Away myself. I know that it's it's a kind of a cheesy song in retro <laughs> it, it, from from no, but from where we are it's been covered it's been yeah. covered more than almost anything else. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, except for maybe Get Up Stand Up, which we'll talk about. Which they in also a few yeah. It, uh, Ain't You Proud to Beg is the only surviving element of the original concept for its only rock and roll. Right. And people like to drag Keith's solo, but I think the, the solo on the record is actually one of my favorite things about that recording. It's it's so anti-genre. You know, it's but, like you you never hear expect to hear something like that on a Motown well, cover. And I think that that's one of the things that I think works so well about them is that it's this combination of very not to say it negatively, but contrived elements. Because I mean, you, horn charts don't write themselves, yeah. and keyboard parts require a lot more attention than primitivistic guitar. I mean, yeah. John Lennon trashed the solo from It's All Over Now, and for one thing, I'm like, John, have you heard your own solos? Yeah. But for another, I think that's a perfectly good solo. It's, yeah. it's choppy and it's got enough Chuck Berry in it, but it's got uh, some more the single string bendy mm -hmm. stuff. But and Keith is aware of his limitations as a guitar player, and, and he knows he's never going to be a Mick Taylor or a Jimi Hendrix. His reach never extends his grasp. Yeah. And there are still there are still many licks of Keith's that, that are very challenging. There's a number of them that uh, you know it's the scotty moore kind of stuff that he does throw out there every now and again exercise in restraint more than anything exactly and he's i had an audio engineering teacher who said you know he, he's not ying Wei and he's not eric johnson and he'll never be in the the g3 but his playing is extremely tasteful yeah and it's never more than it's like if you listen to jimmy page jimmy page does a lot of great ideas but he never really executes them the way that albert uh, or alvin lee mm -hmm. or any of the people he's trying to copy do yeah so to me it's it's like you know do what you can do and yeah. do that as well as you can angel Red to beg is again another one that we all know and love we've mm -hmm. heard it a million times sure, temptations uh, original is the original amazing. is is a very and when when they started doing it live with the full horn section, a little bit closer to the Motown, 
But the Stones, as much as they like Motown and as much as there is a huge Motown influence on the Stones, I feel that they are much more in their performance and their aesthetic sensibilities, Memphis. Sure. They're, they're much, Charlie Watts is very similar to, to Al Jackson Jr., very, very similar approach. And I'm sure it's the jazz training. Yeah. And uh, that swing element here of the big band, it's, it's when the horns come in in a Rolling Stones live performance, it's more redolent of the chorus of a jazz big band than it is of a horn section on a Motown song. And you know, I don't think that there's a bad horn chart in their, no, in their and career. Big ups to Tim Reese, who was the, uh, not just the alto sax player, but I think did a lot of the, he redid, he rearranged a lot of the horn parts on this one. And there had been, they had already done, I don't know who did them for the, the earlier tours, but Tim Reese era, uh, I always thought it's hard to see the iterative development, certainly at the time, but going back and having all the DVDs and laying them all end to end and seeing them, I think that there's definitely a difference in the way that Tim Reese approached the the horn chart writing. Yeah, and you could see the way the interplay between uh, Michael Davis, who plays the trombone on this, and uh, Ken Smith on on trumpet, with Bobby, who's an amazing lead player, but he can just as easily sit in with the section and hold down the bass or baritone note just in some kind of big florid way. I think it's funny that you can say their names normally and not say Kent Smith, Michael Davis. Yes. I, I, I mix introductions on the, on this tour are always great. I love the introductions and (laughs) I never skip them. Uh, so what's next? So uh, after Ain't Too Proud to Beg, Mick does indeed introduce the band. And then uh, Keith gets his spot with a, yet another live debut. This is called Infamy, and it's on the Bigger Bang record. But yeah, uh, Infamy is a great tune. I think uh, it works really well on the record. And here, Keith is obviously having a lot of fun with it. And There's, a, there's another kind of minor mess up the take out some insurance on me style snare hit yeah but you know it's the first time it's played live and i think keith is the only one playing guitar no i think blondie is also because there's electric piano and organ yeah if i'm not mistaken and are either usually on this tour it'd either be tim reese would come over and play something or you know for something like the reggae numbers uh woody would sometimes do the backbeat on on keyboard which is weird if you think about it that you have you're the best guitar player in the band is playing keyboards uh the best guitar player in the band is blondie chaplin thank you very much um <laughs> No, Woody, Woody is astounding and doesn't get enough credit. But yeah, Infamy was super cool, and I believe it is me yelling, we love you, Keith, <laughs> that you can hear on that. It's either it's either me or Bob, I'm pretty sure. I, I hope that they did film this whole show and that we get to see it on one of they these. They film every show. Yeah. That's the thing that kills me, is that, is that it's, they do film every show. and but It's whether they feel it's good enough to release publicly or not. At some point, we will probably see a lot more of them released. I think the archive thing, to me, the Stones are a live band, and I'm much more interested in hearing um, the iterations and the changes on the tours. Mm-hmm. I really want the No Security Tour yeah, still release. Still waiting for that. Yeah, we would love to see a From the Vault release of this on Blu-ray. If if the sh- footage was only shot standard def, that's okay. We've had standard def Blu-rays before. Standard def Blu-rays are great because you can actually see what made old broadcast footage look terrible. <laughs> and it was the broadcast itself. It yeah. wasn't the cameras. But uh, moving right along, we've got Another new song, but this wasn't a live debut because it was played at that announcement show. At the Juilliard. Yeah. This is is, uh, Oh No, Not You Again. Which is a great, I I love it. I love Oh No, Not You Again. And the the funny thing was the Juilliard performance is like 10 BPM slower. Yeah. It really racked it up. It's really slow when they first played it live. And I was really surprised. For one thing, I was surprised that Oh No, Not You Again was not the single for the record. Yeah, it is a catchy hook, but not quite as much as Rough Justice. I thought that, I thought that part of the reason may have been that the, the lyric to Oh No, Not You Again contains more swearing and is more... Um, oh yeah, Rough Justice was banned by right. radio. That's yeah. one of the things... So people say, oh, the Stones don't, don't sell uh, anymore. A lot of their singles, even in the '90s and 2000s, still get banned. Yeah, just and so strange. <laughs> it is. It is very weird when you consider that hip hop has dominated the, the 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 airwaves, or even you know people like uh, Nine Inch Nails in the mid '90s were getting big airplay with a, a chorus that has an f bomb in it. Yeah, so. and and um, but the thing that you got to remember is that even though the single was banned, it still made the top twenty. Yeah, because the the double A side with. Uh, 
uh, uh, was it Streets of Streets Love? Streets of Love. Yeah, that was a CD single before the album came out. So obviously people went out and bought that. But yeah, Oh No Not You Again wasn't ever a single, I, I don't think. No, and 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 the, the other thing, uh, just to finish that thought, is that A Bigger Bang was still number one in tw- album in, in 20 countries. Mm-hmm. And I was I went back a while ago because of all these people saying, oh, the stones sound so well. And actually every one of their records uh, does well without... A, a major hit single, yeah. which is almost even more impressive. Well, when you, you look at uh, the newest album, Blue and Lonesome, and uh, they did have singles from it, but it's weird for an album of blues covers to do as well as that one did. Yeah, everyone was taken, uh, everyone was kind of taken aback by that. But anyway, speaking of covers, uh, the most covered song, I think, in the whole of modern history, uh, Get Up, Stand Up, which is Bob Marley and Peter Tosh from the Whalers wrote this in the early 70s. Yeah, and, you know, there's always some people who don't like the the Stones' uh, approach to reggae. Um, but it's a great chance for Keith to shine because, you know, this is absolutely his idiom. Yeah, and they've been living, Keith has been living in Jamaica for so long. They were such early adopters of of reggae. I mean, I was just watching that classic albums thing on Catch a Fire, which oh, is, yeah. is Amazing great. record, yeah. And that's Dynamic Sound Studios, and that's where Goat's Head Soup was done. Yeah. Uh, you almost never know it was done mm-hmm. in, in, in Jamaica because, like, I mean, when you go to Memphis, the minute you get out of the airport and into the air, there you feel it yeah i do not think that you could go to jamaica and not i'm, I'm sure it influenced them in in various ways but get up stand up is is an interesting case because it is uh, an activist song it's been adopted as the official anthem i think of uh amnesty international you know it's been connected to a lot of humanitarian causes and oh yeah and it didn't the lyric is very interesting because it references many theological arguments as well as uh, hollow earth theories right and I don't know how much of this is in, like, obviously the Rasta culture, right? They know their their Bible back to front, but it's like, some people say, great God is up in the sky. It's about whether God is- has A living a, man. Has, yeah. an a, has an active presence in, yeah. in life and, and actually, like, manipulates the material realm on behalf of humanity or whether he's more distant yeah. or whether God is more distant. I won't say he or she. Um, well, the thing is, I think there was even disagreement between Marley and Tosh about the interpretation of this, and I think Tosh's solo recording changes that lyric. I'm not 100% sure, because I haven't listened to it in a long time. But I definitely prefer Tosh's version, come, come to think Musically, of it. Musically, yeah. But this uh, is great. I think the, the, the band do a great job of this. Obviously, Charlie is a monster backbeat, and you know when they do play reggae, it's really amazing to listen to his interplay with the guitarists and the bass. And again, this see. is... I think this is something that they could have only done with Daryl. Yeah, Daryl's bass playing on this is amazing. And uh, the horn chart, again, great. You know, And there's that moment where you kind of think it's over. Right. I remember being in the room for that and, and just being like blown away that when they, and he comes back in and yeah. just hits, oh man, it was, it was something. I was so floored that they were going to do it. I mean, you, you know that that's a very common song and sure. it's, you know, you almost don't ever need to listen to that or Redemption Song or mm-hmm. a lot of the other. I shot the sheriff. Yeah, because they're Bob always. Marley. It's like Bob Marley Legend is something that it seems like an album you get at birth, right? It came it's in like, the mail with samples of Tide. Yeah. I, I remember here. I was on an Edward Bound trip, and I heard. Can you tell it was the '90s? Because it was. It was a Legend, Clapton, yeah. Unplugged, uh-huh. and Intergalactic by the Beastie Boys, and yeah, I heard yeah. those records. That's all you need. So many times. That's like you get your Wheaties in the morning, and those three records. <laughs> um, but uh, the more interesting choice to cover is this Otis Redding song. It's like they do it very fast. The horn chart is staggeringly fast. I those s- trills. This is uh, Mr. Pitiful. I still listen. This is this is on YouTube and definitely yeah, watch this. This and this and Get Up Stand Up are both on that uh, the Stones YouTube channel, I think, because they were bonus features on the Biggest Bang DVD, and they've just replicated them online. So go watch these if you don't listen to anything else on this album if you don't ever download it just check those two out. oh man no the mr pitiful is is so good such a good choice probably one of my favorite uh otis redding songs mm-hmm. and this soul influence i mean people talk about the stones and soul being like the ballads they had hits with in the 60s but they also do heavy soul great but but people don't and again memphis right yeah. booker t and the mgs mm-hmm. uh probably the closest other guitar player in the way he approaches things to Keith Richards is Steve Cropper. Yeah, amazing. And I, I have a 66 style telly because the first person I ever saw play guitar 
was Steve Cropper mm-hmm. in, in the Blues Brothers. Sure. And yeah. so to me, like a lot of people got dazzled by a lot of lead playing, but to me it was it was Steve Cropper and the way he fit in with the rhythm section. And then uh, when I saw Keith had the same guitar, I, th- I thought, well, this is the one for me. The Memphis thing is racial integration and the Stax production philosophy. I always try to copy the sound of Memphis soul now. And it's got, it's gotten so deep to me that I don't even really think about it. And the funny thing is, is that if you are more, if you're a white guy and you're into more of the rock idiom, people will always read it as being, you're trying to be like the stones. Um, but really I'm, I'm just trying to get back to Memphis. You know, the writing style of Otis Redding and his arrangement style is a massive influence on them. And what I find very strange when people discuss the music of the sixties, not just the, the, the music itself, the social context, when people talk about the sixties, I just find it weird that we're not talking about Motown and Stax and, or even Bakersfield country for that matter. Yeah. There is there, like it, and it's something about the dominance of uh, rock or boomer culture or whatever it is. But th- you got to remember, even the Beatles wanted to, their records to sound more like Motown. Right. They had that yearning to be uh, copyists of an American style, even though they were interpreting it through their own lens. Yeah, and, and you got to remember, in terms of audio production, uh, English studios couldn't do anything like what the Americans were. And the Stone, the, the reason why so many of the Stones recordings from the 60s, I think, hold up is because they were done in the States. Right, at RCA or at Chess, those yeah. kind of records, yeah. And, uh, Especially the Chess records that they did. All the stuff like on the twelve by five album, the stuff that's in stereo on the new stream master, that sounds fantastic. The last three songs in the set are all kind of like big hits to sort of close it out. They do tumbling dice at kind of a weirdly slow tempo. It is slower, and what's funny about this is that if you listen to other performances, like on Shine a Light or uh, the Zilker Park one, mm, from it's tour. as fast as they've ever done it, yeah. and they really, I really like. Th- this version is fine, and, and there's a concept in the Stones music that I call heavy slowness, mm-hmm. when it it's just a little bit slower than you want it to be, and that makes you want to hear the the two and the four. Yeah, you want to hear, hear hear that happen more. Keith knows about this from uh, his Nyabingi friends because they they play deliberately just under the resting heart rate uh, of eighty B- BPM mm-hmm. for depending on who you are, and so. This version of Tumbling Dice is certainly not my favorite from this period, but again, it's interesting to just hear it in this very raw elemental state. But I, I do think it improved greatly once they added the the B bender. Oh yeah, when Ronnie started playing the the lead on the B bender, it's when you get that amazing countrified soaring quality that those bends and the way that Daryl and Charlie have continually uh, reinvented the way they, I mean, I could listen to that outro groove forever, yeah. really any version of it. Um, but I, again, the horn's great. Awesome on this. Um, we get Brown sugar again with Bobby's amazing sax solo, which, you know, I still miss hearing him do it to this day. Like, yeah. I think that if there's anything to talk about here, it's probably, um, Bobby keys. Yeah. Uh, because you know, I mean, what can, like I was just saying, what can you say about Brown sugar that hasn't already been said? Yeah. We're not in the business of doing that on this deep cuts podcast. No, so. no only original did, thoughts. Did they leave the stage after this and then come yeah, back? Yeah, no, they always do a curtain call like that. And, and I, I think it's to towel Mick off mostly. Yeah. So um, then they close, out after coming back up with Jumpin' Jack Flash. Yeah, and then they do that. Um, I think they this is when they started doing that weird hit the road Jack boogie thing mm-hmm. at the end of the. I think that's the joke that yeah. it's Jumpin' Jack Flash, and then they do 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 do. It's yeah. supposed to be hit hit the road Jack. And then they started doing it when they closed the show with Satisfaction. They started putting that same groove there, and I think it's kind of lost, but it's still um, it's it's funnier it's when still, you think of Jumpin' Jack road, Flash, Jumpin' Jack. But it's it's still cool to hear them. To hear them do that. And apparently in the rehearsals, and you know better than I, but apparently in the rehearsals, they were doing things like, thank you for letting me be myself. Yeah, they were doing some more of the like Watts 103rd Street rhythm band stuff, which is amazing. <laughs> like I couldn't really hear it because I was outside the building, but you could just hear it reverberating off the walls. And the people lined up outside to wait for autographs were kind of blown away too that they were pulling out so many strange cover choices. Yeah, and I I think that what happens is that they they are very free form in what they choose to rehearse. But but then there comes a certain point where Mick has his demographic data and his lists of what songs are popular, and you can see him and do this in China Light. Yeah, on the plane, he's got the list. It of hurt songs. me so much when when like the the never do these tier has laugh. I nearly died. Oh, 
right at the top there. Um, Cause I, I think, I think that that's where you find some of their most interesting stuff. And, you know, I mean, the, the only problem with the latest tour to me is that the big hits, there's now more, they, they just added uh, Gimme Shelter and Midnight Rambler. They're now everyday choices. They do them every show. And I think Midnight Rambler only gets better. Midnight Rambler is one of those ones where it's just like, how do they even keep coming up with variations on this you think yeah. i thought for the longest time that the the best one i'd ever hear was uh get your yayas out if, you know for most of my life and then it was then it was definitely the madison square garden licks tour yeah, one that one's great it blew me away but then the last even just the last couple times i've i've seen them live uh midnight rambler always stands out and always works there's a there's a lot of tempo changes there's a lot of groove changes and, and again uh, it could still go off the rails at any time and that's what makes it exciting yeah yeah and and so i guess the point is here that this show did uh do a lot of bold choices comparatively bold i know that some people don't like that when you're talking about a big crowd-pleasing rock act well but i think for a club show you know they are more adventurous and they you know they realize they don't have to keep the attention of eighty thousand people they just have to keep the groove going for the small club audience and you know one of the things that i i I really don't like going uh, to large crowded environments i will only really do it for the stones but the thing i can never understand about the audience there is that everybody is spending most of the time going back and getting beer uh, the outdoor shows are built into segments where it's like okay you hear a couple hits up the top and then they'll slow it down a little bit and then they'll you know maybe do a couple more fast ones and then keith gets his set and then more fast ones and then the encore so it's like there's a well-defined kind of rhythm to how things play out and i think that's a good thing personally if you're doing a big outdoor concert the last thing you want is people to get restless and angry well you said i think that it was the best directed show in, in live music. And I really think that that's, Tim has really made me pay a lot more attention to uh, the lighting cues. Yeah. And that, that is a big factor too. In a small club, there's just like a couple par cans or whatever, a couple colored spots, but on a big outdoor show, you can really keep people's attention with the video and the pyro and the pyro and also just the way that you use lighting to keep people's interest. I mean, nothing will top the, the, the scorpion tail that shot fire to <laughs> right. me like that that lounge. was that was something and it's like mad max <laughs> i don't know steel wheels has got a kind of blade runner vibe. yeah it, it did have that too um mark fisher and and mick refer to i think both of those stages as a post-apocalyptic yeah. uh, vision there i guess they really like beyond the thunderdome yeah or Ca- w- california love but you look at the design of the bigger bang stage and it's literally an opera house on wheels well, because because of the onstage thing yeah and and what's funny is i i wonder what it would have been had they actually gone for something more like the Babylon tour where it was more germane to the concept of the the album and I don't really know what there there was that press release about how you know they're all sitting around contemplating the origins of the universe and <laughs> well, the I, album artwork is funny because it's a, a riff on that painting of the the scientists oh is that what it is the title of the painting is an experiment on the bird in the air pump. Pretty famous piece of work. We'll have to edit it in later when I do the tag for this. But yeah, the the they're riffing on the idea of discovery and yeah, early reinvention. Yeah, but I think that I think that they almost went with um, calling it under the radar, right? Which would have put a boot in our podcast for sure. Would get it up on that uh, yeah up for charts. sure. For sure. Speaking because, of which, you know, <laughs> if anybody is like listening to this at all and wants to <laughs> get it out to more people, we could use the uh, the help in spreading the word. So if you've enjoyed uh, Under the Radar, Rolling Stones podcast about deep cuts and hot cookies, tell your people, get it up on that Facebook, get it up on that Twitter. Subscribe. Until next time, uh, if you want to leave any comments, please do. Uh, we can be Unless found they're angry comments, in which case, yeah, smash that, that angry. Leave that on YouTube where it belongs. <laughs> Uh, if you want to ask us a question, uh, please send your feedback and comments and concerns. And oh yeah, if you have if you have requests, definitely. Yeah. Or or if there's something that you think that we didn't cover. Yeah, well, we're happy to take in all advice suggestions uh, to Rolling Stones Podcast at gmail uh, Until next time, I've been uh, Tim Lindsay, and I continue to be Christian Bonner, and uh, we'll see you next time for Under the Radar. <laughs>